0: And this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hey
1: everyone, welcome to a new interview on in Datacast. And today, I have the pleasure to be on a call with Willem Pina. Willem is the creator of this a uh, feature store for machine learning. Fist is an open source project that Willem developed while leading the machine learning platform team at Gojek, the Indonesian ride-hailing startup. In a previous life, he founded saw a networking startup, and also work on industrial data system. So Willem, welcome to the show. Hey James, thanks for having me on the data Coast. Fabulous. By way of introduction, I believe you are South African and did your undergrad degree in machine engineering at the Stellenbosch University in the early 2010s. So can you share briefly about your upbringing as well as your college experience?
2: Yeah, I'm a South African, grew up in Cape Town, went to university in Stellenbosch, a small student town, studied mechatronic engineering. At the time, it was kind of like if you were ambitious, you'd study engineering or become a doctor. And I think a lot of South Africans have an ambition to get out of the country to kind of like first world countries, you know, work in, you know, like the U.S. or Europe or in Australia. And so engineering was something that I found interesting, as well as something that could potentially launch a career. But at the same time, I always felt like computer science, interesting, and something that I always uh, was around.
1: I see. While well, doing research on your profile, I found a very interesting fact that during college, you founded so a networking startup that provides internet access to private residents on campus. So yeah, yeah. Can, uh, just going over that entrepreneurial journey. Yeah,
2: that's an, a kind of an interesting story. I had to put myself through university. We started a company out of my dorm room, essentially, where we resold wireless internet. So in the student campus, it's expensive to get internet. And if you had an ADSL line, you could kind of resell that and share a line with other people. And so a single, I just put a Wi-Fi router on my roof and started reselling that. And that over time, grew into a business that I mean, it took five plus years, but it grew to the whole city. So we'd have towers up on mountains, and we'd have employees, and uh, you know, we'd have contracts with buildings and businesses, and you know, hundreds of paying customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of crazy how a need for me to just get through university and needing some income to do that grew into that business. And when I finished my degree, sold that to our competitor. So basically you set up the wireless infrastructure in these student complexes and the students in those buildings would almost always just use you as their service provider because it's so much cheaper. But mm-hmm. if you're a competitor or if you're in that industry, you can't break into that building like as a reseller, if somebody's already there. So our competitor just had to buy us up. They just didn't really have a choice. And so that was kind of my first foray into entrepreneurship and running a
1: business. It's very interesting. I'm just curious. Like, what are some of the lessons you learned from doing something like that at quite a young? Uh day? number one, don't do a full-time engineering degree and run a
2: full-time business that requires you know 24/7 attention. It was like the toughest time of my life because you know your customers can have problems at 2 a.m. We'd have like lightning strike one of our towers and it will just like collapse and then 200, 300 people's internet is off. Then you have to find a solution and you might have an exam the next day. So. Those are not good combinations. Um, be born rich, <laughs> I guess, is my advice. <laughs> or try and don't bite off too much uh, if you're going to study and work. You know, do you know stagger those. Yeah, I
1: see. Yeah, but I, I suppose like you know that has so beating up early on a career like provide that grit and that. Reason. Yeah, I think
2: I think what I've what I learned is like you know you're capable of a lot, right? So if you really need to do something, if there's necessity. You you'll find a way to do it. Mm. and uh, when I started my studies I wasn't sure if I could you know build a business out of that and um, it required us to get out of our comfort zone you know if you're 18 years old you know going up to like a body corporate like in management consulting a no, management company of a building and convincing them to commit to a contract is kind of scary you, know, you didn't really have understanding of business and you know contractual and legal frameworks and all those things right but it happened because we were solving a real problem for people and so I learned that you know, if you focus on the problem and you present a solution, people are willing to figure out the details.
1: Thanks for sharing the story. After college, you worked for two years as a software engineer at System Anywhere in Cape Town, focusing on data system. Uh, what were some of the major projects that you contributed to during your time there?
2: Yeah, there were a bunch of projects, but I'd say the biggest one was a, a national efficiency monitoring system that we rolled out for a large food producer. So we'd have, it's almost like an IoT system that would, be placed in manufacturing plants that measure, like you know, the rate at which products are being produced, the different types of products, and all kinds of efficiencies of the employees, and it would collect that information at each plant and then you know, pump it up into the cloud, where we would build a. It's, at the time, it was basically a data lake, and then we would build kind of visualizations and reporting on top of that for the management, and eventually we'd also integrate that into their ERP systems, and so they could kind of do planning and you know, issue, you know, orders for stock and all kinds of things, the logistical things. So I think that was probably the biggest project that we worked on there. But most of the time those are just smaller projects for that company. Yeah.
1: Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. After working there for two years, between twenty fifteen and twenty seventeen, you move to Bangkok and then work as a senior software engineer at in which is a company in industrial control systems. First of all, what was the rationale behind yeah, this move? And then second of all, how was your time working there?
2: Well, firstly, Bangkok is awesome to live and work there.
1: I wanted to immigrate, and Indef was a company that
2: um, was looking for the skill set that I had. So industrial control systems, software engineering. Um, this is kind of a consulting role in some senses. So we worked with kind of large multinational corporations. So these were like Dutch producers and oil and gas and lots of kind of large-scale industrial companies, enterprises. But basically it was just, I wanted to you know work in, in another country and um, see Southeast Asia. And that was a great opportunity to do that. So for this company, we did something very similar in, to, to what we did in South Africa. It was kind of IoT and manufacturing software, all the way from the bottom of the stack to the top. So literally like electronics and electrical systems and sometimes machines and pumps all the way up to the cloud and to kind of management systems and planning systems to the executive level almost. That was a great experience working, cutting through those verticals all the way from bottom to top. And then, you know, being on the ground, um, sometimes going out into the Indonesian jungle where we would have like, for the one project we had like, you know, collecting data from hydroelectric power plants where we would you know stream that data back into Jakarta and there'd be a control center that we had developed for them to like operate um, these power plants. So that was a great experience. And it was fun being
1: in Southeast Asia. I see. Well, for both of this role and the, the previous role, you work on, like you said, IoT-related projects, industry data system. I'm just curious, like, what are some of the unique challenges do you think that this medical has compared to like other, say, industry, for example? Yeah.
2: If you think about it, these are mostly traditional uh, companies that or in, in industrial, they have existing plants or uh, machinery and they digitize that, right? That's why they bring you and you're kind of like bringing modern technology to them. And so it's always the integration points that are the problem. Like there's no connectivity. There's no you know, way for you to bolt on what you've developed. There's no documentation. It's just, you, you've got 30 year old dated machinery that you suddenly have to you know, turn into something that's producing modern data points. If you, you just have a pump and you need to measure its speed, How do you do that? How do you measure the the volumetric throughputs and things like that? So there's all these hundreds of little challenges that you have to kind of overcome in order to complete a project. Um, And then trying to do that in in a way that you're bounded by a specific contractual amount right you can't overrun the contract otherwise you're making a loss for your company and the whole project is like a waste of time um, and money those are some of the challenges um, and most of the challenges actually is common to consulting where it's about scope and managing expectations more than technical challenges
1: yeah thanks for clarifying on those challenges so in early 2017 you've moved to Jakarta and Joy Gojek which is right now a leading Indonesian on-demand or service platform in Digital Payment Technology Group. For the listeners who are not familiar with the organization, can you provide an overview of Gojek and what motivated you to join at that point?
2: Yeah, so Gojek at that point was kind of a rocket ship that had, it was just taking off. Um, it's an Indonesian company. So Gojek is kind of an extension of the name uh, Ojek, and that's an Indonesian motorcycle taxi. The whole idea behind Gojek is essentially we're going to provide a single app that fulfills all of these workday needs that you, as a customer or user or employee, have during your day. Whether that's getting food, whether that's making payments or purchases for groceries, or you know anything like e-commerce, whether that's ride-hailing. So they built themselves based on a like the ride-hailing product. They built a super app that eventually consisted out of about 16 or 17 different services and products. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'd have like digital payments. You'd have um, the logistic network that has like careers and e-commerce and groceries and lifestyle services. Like you can get your car serviced and all kinds of things like that. You can buy you know data for your phone. Almost everything that you need, you can get through that app. I was hired into that company. It was about I think three or four years after they had you know, kind of raised a few rounds and grew. So they had a, a core product, but they didn't really have a data foundation. They didn't really have machine learning at all in the company running anywhere, they knew that they had, they were sitting on mountains of just some of the best data in Southeast Asia. So they had all these products that millions and millions of users, and they were doing nothing with the data. They started hiring data scientists. They couldn't get anything into production. And they just, so they said, okay, we need an engineering team to help these data scientists, just get something into production. And so that's kind of where we came in. Our directive at the start was just build ML systems and solve these problems and then get us an uplift on core metrics mm-hmm. um, or get us reduce some of the fraud or, you know, just make us more efficient. So all of the key things that you as a kind of leader of a company want from your core product. And that was a kind of initial point at uh, getting into Asia
1: Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks for going back to that anecdote. I guess just a quick point about this notion of super app, you know, super app is pretty popular it's in, in Asia, but it's not I guess quite popularized in the West. I'm just curious, like, what, what do you think are uh, some of the driving force to make super app an accepted kind of technology in Asia? And from a technical part of view, like, what are potential, like, engineering challenges associated with building such a complex system? Well, that's a good question. I'm
2: not sure why in Asia it's taken off but of not in the West. It could be that Asia already is extremely efficient at doing a lot of these services. And so you're basically just digitizing them. But let's just take one service, like, you know, if you want to get a massage in Jakarta, that literally was one of the Gojek services. That is not a service that I think would be viable in the West, just because the cost would be significantly higher. I'm not sure if it's just that there's a gamut of these services that already exist and that you can just digitize in Asia. And that's kind of created this. I think China started the Super App thing and other companies have emulated that successfully. So... Maybe there's like a combined share that's just built there, so te- from a technical standpoint, I almost think it's an advantage because you're faced with a lot of challenges in terms of data modeling. Mm-hmm. so we had a sister company called Traveloka that's kind of not a sister company but one that's also unicorn in Indonesia, and they were building a feature store, and theirs was kind of different from ours and that I won't go into the details, but because they only had two or three entities in their organization, so it's like a flight and a trip is the only entity in the customer. Mm. They had a very simple data infrastructure. And it's just easy to reason about and easy to think about. Where in Gojek, you had a very flat, democratized, decentralized structure with all of these 16, 17 different products running as independent companies. And some of them literally are independent companies. And then you have to kind of converge those into one global system and kind of align everybody on the same technologies. So that's kind of a challenge. But the benefit of that for a team like ours is you generalize your software so you know that you can cover all of these use cases when you're if you build a, like a feast or a system like that you've battle tested it on you know all of these different technologies and all of these wild data models and use cases mm-hmm. so i guess it depends on the way you're looking at it
1: yeah i see let's go, go into some of the details on the main work that your team was responsible for at gojek so you led the Datasense platform team and developed the machine learning platform that supports such a wide variety of models for very large scale requests every month. You know, during the research of this conversation, I also found a very interesting and, and detailed blog series on the Gojek website on the machine learning platform. It basically dissect the four solutions for various stages of the machine life cycle, including Merlin, Clockwork, Fist, and Turing. So could mind just quickly walking through some of these solutions at a high level?
2: Yeah, sure. I'll just quickly go. I'll reorder them slightly so that it fits into the ML lifecycle. So our ML platform team focused on this end-to-end machine learning lifecycle from idea to production, and we just wanted to make a self-service platform that a data scientist could just you know go from nothing to something without an engineer being involved. Clockwork is one of the first tools we built and probably the most widely adopted system that the team built. So it's literally just Airflow with like an abstraction layer on top of that. Um, so it's a scheduler and it is a opinionated way for you to declaratively define dags of you know jobs so we compile down a kind of top level graph like a yaml graph into an airflow pipeline and that is just you know for some reason this was a much safer way for us to operate Airflow than giving data scientists access to code. Um, So we basically containerize all of their code and run that as containers um, and we build the Airflow graph as opposed to giving them access to Python, which ended up being extremely inefficient and unstable. But uh, eventually we build UIs on top of that as well to make it more convenient to use. So Merlin is the next tool. Merlin is a model serving system. So it's, it's an abstraction on top of both KF serving as well as MLflow. So Mm -hmm. you as a data scientist, if you're training a model, you'd publish your model using Merlin into our model registry. You could build up versions of that model, and then you could deploy that. So you'd just have like a user interface, you'd click a button, and then your model would be served in production using some API. Mm -hmm. Um, And you could kind of like A-B test and do all kinds of cool things there. You know, it's running on on Istio and KF Serving behind the scenes. So it's a completely serverless environment. So Feast is the one we're going to talk about today. That's the open source feature store. It's, It's our... Operational data system is how we get data upstream from our data warehouse or from our streams into production for training and serving to machine learning models. Uh, And then Turing, finally, is our experimentation system. So this is mostly used for online experimentation. So if you have a request coming into a model, you'd first actually hit Turing, and then Turing would decide to which model it would delegate that request. And you'd be able to configure all kinds of experiments and rules and things and how it should be balancing and weighting your models and the actions to take and the fallbacks. And um, so Turing is that front layer. And then you'd be able to tie back your model's performance um, ultimately to um, you know outcomes. So if a driver successfully completes a trip with the customer, it's a positive outcome and your model gets you know some points. And otherwise, it you know doesn't get points. And then you can compare and contrast at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, thanks for really going through some of those details on these are different, I guess, component of the whole platform that your team built out at Gojek. I guess I'm just curious, like, how long does it take to come up from the initial idea of this design then all the way into the finish line?
2: It can take long. So normally we have, you always address the whole lifecycle because you have existing solutions. You have existing systems that go from nothing to something, right? But it might just be super specific and hard-coded. You build mm-hmm. a custom system. And then when you build that system, you realize this specific component is reusable. And it's also one that takes a lot of time. So that the next time you want to build that into an ML system, you don't want to rebuild that component. You want to have a product there that, you know, you can reuse over and over. So we, for Merlin Clockwork Feast and During, I'd say those were all multi-month efforts. The fastest one to develop was probably Clockwork. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other three are, you know, large-scale projects. Yeah, that took multiple months. And I mean, Feast is still ongoing. So, yeah. I so. By the way, Berlin is open source. Um, I'm not sure if they've updated their docs, but I can link, uh, you know, your listeners to the project if they're interested in that.
1: Definitely. Considering that this is like an internal platform, I suppose your team have to interface a lot with uh, data scientists and uh, data engineers within Kojak.
2: Yeah. So we're basically that bridge between the data scientists and engineers. So. come to us the data scientists and data engineers create data create models serve them and then we are the ones that connect them to kind of the production engineering backend, like the actual product
1: Mm -hmm. yeah perfect yeah Yeah. and uh, okay so let's talk about that aspect uh, a little bit further in one of your talk at the cloud next 2018 you discussed like the four concrete lesson that you learned from from scaling machining at GoShack and google cloud specifically with regard to you know this platform can you you know, recap some of those lessons and the equivalent platform design, you know, to meet the scaling requirements at Gojek.
2: Yeah. So I had a look at those points again, just to kind of refresh my memory. So the one was, you know, let the data come to you. Features should be free. You shouldn't break abstraction and you should pre-compute everything. I thought about those a bit. My thinking has changed a little bit, but I can kind of go through them. Mm -hmm. One of the big problems we had when we started at Gojek was that we didn't really have a data foundation. We didn't, it was, you know, people would be connecting straight to like production databases. If you want to do ML and especially operational ML at scale, you need to have a proper data foundation before you do anything. Unfortunately, a lot of data scientists are being roped into doing that work today, (laughs) so they're being turned into data engineers, but hopefully in the future, this is just a solved problem with most companies. But one is you need a data foundation that is unified across your kind of like eventing and historical environments. Um, Secondly, it should not be a your feature should be free. You shouldn't be struggling with the creation or the publishing of features, and ideally, you should be able to reuse features when they're created by other teams. You should avoid breaking abstraction. I think this is a key one for us. We have an API-first kind of approach, but uh, this one I'll change a little bit. Um, I think an important thing that is super overlooked in the industry that I um, you know, always hammer on is there are different life cycles in the development of different parts of an ML system. And the biggest mistake that a lot of teams make, especially when they try and scale, is to not break up their system into smaller components and then have end-to-end ML solutions that you know one guy's working on data engineering and, and another person is working on you know, modeling. Another person is working on deployment but it's one massive pipeline and they're all stepping on each other's toes. The components that make up that graph should be broken up into separate stages. Um, that's where feature stores come in. That's where Merlin or MLflow comes in. That's where CI CD systems come in. So I think that don't break abstraction should be you know modularize your, your workflows. And then finally, just pre-compute everything. I think this is one that a lot of people think it's cool to kind of like have real-time systems that are always being updated, on the fly retraining, all that stuff. but it's much better to just pre compute everything and um, do everything in batch if that's you know, serving data or if that's serving models. Easier to track, easier to fall back, easier to measure the performance, and you know, just easier to reason about.
1: Yeah. I see. Do you mention uh, right now you have some URI updates on this lesson? Are they still?
2: Yeah. So I'm saying uh, the don't break abstraction one, I, I kind of changed into kind of modularize your workflows. Mm-hmm. So I think that one is a little bit tweaked. So that's the only change <laughs> I'd make.
1: Yeah. Because, Garth, I want to say don't break abstraction, you mean? Yeah, so
2: basically, um, instead of you know showing the internals, kind of exposing that um, to external, normally when you integrate with the external team, uh, if they have tight dependencies on your internal implementations, it's kind of volatile and can cause a lot of pain, especially in Gojek and decentralized organizations like that. So mm-hmm. I've changed that one to kind of you know refocus it a little bit into you know, more of the data science workflows. Which is just decouple your process into various stages.
1: Yeah. Thanks a lot for clarifying on some of these ideas. Continuing on some of these talks that you talk about, you know, when you enjoy experience scaling platforms at Gojek, your team actually relied on Qflow in order to make some of this requirement. You know, in your talk at GiveCon 2019, You discussed some of the benefits of doing machining on Kubernetes, including Veristage, considering things like experimentation, orchestration, economy scale, workloads, future stores, rapid expansion, and traceability. You know, what are some of the key design components that your team made in order to incorporate Kubeflow pipelines into the existing ML platform within Gojek at that time?
2: Yeah, this is a great question. Actually, this was a lot easier than we thought. Kubeflow is... You know, it's not super trivial to deploy but once it's deployed and running it's very easy to integrate so we already had clockwork running but we were running into a lot of problems and we didn't realize that at the time but qflow actually solved those problems by being a purpose-built machine learning system so this almost resonates to me more with the kind of like database versus feature store analogy where airflow is built for data pipelines and certain design decisions that they made that make it hard to build ML pipelines, where Kubeflow solves those problems by being built for ML pipelines. Mm -hmm. Um, So basically we'd write at the time originally, let's say model training pipelines in Airflow, but you cannot do things like parameterize an Airflow pipeline and Airflow pipelines are time-based. So let's say you change the code, then all your historical um, runs are suddenly invalid. So the unique ID of a run is the time. It's not an instance of that pipeline. Where with Kubeflow, you can do all of these things. So you can have the template for a pipeline. You can create instances of that pipeline. It's not tied to a specific date and time. It cannot really be rerun. Like, you can create a new instance, but you can't rerun, like, you know, the 7th of Jan, 2021. And so a lot of the kind of use cases that we had were focused on how can we rapidly experiment with a lot of different pipelines and create like 50 instances with different parameters and just try them out. And Kubeflow allowed us to do that. So all we had to do was instead of using Airflow for a specific stage in our workflow, we just use Kubeflow and we trigger the pipeline and the output of that went back into our production environment. And that was it. It was pretty easy to do
1: yeah fabulous i guess another one that i'm pretty curious about is how a lot of the choice of tools that the that team used was pretty much tied in with google cloud right from like BigQuery to big table and things like that you know i'm just curious like what's some of the reasons that you know gojek you know decided to partner with gcp and- that's a
2: great question that decision was made before i joined the team so i it's a mystery nobody really knows <laughs> but at a certain scale you just can't you can move a company of that scale but it you know, at no point did we feel like the push was worth it to go to amazon or to any other cloud provider we were very happy with the tooling that google provided us and gave us a lot of extra attention because we were i think one of the largest clients in southeast asia mm-hmm. so basically we were limited to the stack that google provided us but we were happy with that stack so i guess that's as close an answer i can give you
1: <laughs> well if I, g- I guess we're really relevant to that point right As a and discuss feature stores, you are most well known for creating FIS, which is an open-source feature store that bridges the gap between data and models. And in fact, I'll explain in the lunch article in collaboration with Google Cloud back in January 2019. The initial goal of FIS was to solve a set of common challenges facing engineering teams by becoming an open, extensible, unified platform for feature storage. So, like just going back to that part, I like, could mind unpacking some of those challenges and sort of the capabilities of FIS 0.1 to address some of those challenges.
2: Yeah, so one of the things we realized was that when we looked at our whole internal ML lifecycle and that we were really spending a lot of time on feature engineering and getting features into production, and there was a lot of duplication of features. Basically, it was just a big mess. All these data scientists were just duplicating code and not tracking anything. There's no structure, no lineage, no versioning, or any of that. So we set about to build a feature store, or we knew that you know, the Michelangelo team had built something of this kind and they'd solve these problems. And so we knew we wanted to build something like that to address this problem. And so we kind of researched this and developed this with Google. Um, so, Google Cloud, well, Google is one of our investors. And so we collaborated with the engineering team to guide Google Cloud on this. So, the core problems at the time that we highlighted were features were not being reused. So, there's a lot of duplication. The definitions of features varied. So, you know, they have the same definition twice or It would be ambiguous what a definition of a feature was. So, you know, somebody could say, like, what's the conversion rate? And to one person, that's, you know, how many orders um, are successful. You know, if you'd make a booking and the booking is completed in a successful state, that's a conversion. But is that booking for a ride hailing trip? Is it for all trips in the company? Is it for uh, digital payments? Or is that for, there's so many different definitions depending on who you're talking to. You want to kind of standardize that. third problem was it's hard to serve up-to-date features this is mostly about getting into production so feature stores are meant to bridge the gap between your data and especially the kind of offline development work and world and into the machine learning world and if you're a data scientist the feature store provides that way way in which you can publish data or connect data into the operational production side then you as a consumer on that other side and train a model and serve a model on that production quality data. And so it sits on that intersection, that kind of boundary between those two worlds and ML and data between offline and online. It was hard to serve features in, in kind of the production environment prior to a feature store. So prior to a feature store, you'd have to like data scientists come up to you and say, I need to have production infrastructure and you need, need to provision like a Redis or Redis cluster. Or you need to set up all the infrastructure around that. You'd have to dedicate a person to manage that. Need to have playbooks and all kinds of, you know, there's just a lot of work and it's very custom. Mm-hmm. So feature store basically takes a big problem space, which is how can I publish features and how can I consume features and makes a service out of that. It's like features as a service, mm-hmm. essentially. And then you don't nobody has to continually deploy data infrastructure just to serve features. Mm-hmm. And then the final problem was just an inconsistency between training and serving. And this was actually a big one. So you'd have data scientists creating like training pipelines, like I said, monolithic, right? So they do like transformations of batch data and then train a model, but it's all Python. Then in production, there's the model, right? The model makes it into production somehow, but none of the transformations are there. And so they'd have like Golang or Java or Clojure or something else doing those same transformations, but in a different way. Right. And so the model would see slightly different data and you'd never be able to detect that, but you'd see it in your metrics. Like, you'd know that, you know, the performance is not nearly as good as it was in, in training. And so those are the kind of things that we wanted to address with Feast. Mm-hmm. So we built Feast. It was, you know, we launched it. We made some decisions like we would not pick up the transformations within Feast. So that's also one of the big problems that data science face with just transforming data. But we felt like there was enough upstream systems and existing tooling in the space for them you know, to deal with transformations. So we kind of descoped that. So Feast is, when we launched it, kind of addressed all of these four problems. But the one that we didn't really fully address was the feature reuse one. So mm-hmm. one of the things that we re- thought would be you know, obvious is like you can publish features to Feast and people will just start reusing it. You just go to the feature store and just pick the ones you want and you can just train your model. But it turns out that there's still a large trust factor there. You know, If you don't make it super clear exactly what you are consuming and using in your model, then data scientists tend to want to kind of publish their own data or fork upstream code and publish that into Feast. And so we had good penetration of feature reuse, and Feast was successful at that, but it wasn't as high as we had thought. So it wasn't like 90% reuse. It was uh, you know, like 20 30%. Something like that. Those are the kind of the key problems. And there's another problem we've also started solving with Feast, which was ensuring the quality of data. So we could like, uh, with Feast 0.7, you can like validate uh, training data and production data going into models in real time and in batch. Um, so that's something that we're really focused on right now as well for Feast. And we see that mm-hmm. as like a big problem in, in, in the current operational ML systems.
1: I see. Yeah. Feature reuse and data quality. Those two picks. I guess another one I'm very curious. So this project has been developed in-house in in Gojek and you also partner with GCP for the help. How does this idea come about like from a people perspective? I guess like you know, you like discuss a lot with with some of the partner in GCP and come up with this idea or do they Yeah,
2: um, I mean they're, they're always Google is super collaborative. They Engage us frequently to partner on these things. This is one of three or four projects that we're running at the time. Obviously, mm-hmm. I can't really talk about the others because there's nothing public about those. But you know, they have specific folks that are dedicated to Gojek, and they mm-hmm. are always looking to kind of partner with us. And Google also gets something out of it, right? And uh, right. there's always an incentive for them to do it as well. It's not just purely Gojek that benefits.
1: Yeah. That was back in early 2019. Over the past two years or so, there have been incremental improvements to FIST, various things from you know, rollout to more teams, decentralized serving, feature sets, point time correctness, you know, spacing, visual visualization, visual validation, and much more. is also an open source project with multiple organizations and people contributing. As a core maintainer and creator of the project, how do you prioritize product roadmap while developing an open source project?
2: Yeah, so producing a roadmap can always be tricky because if everybody wants something different. We've pushed out a lot of you know functionality that people have wanted, but at the end of the day, you need to look at kind of what your product vision is and whether that solves a problem or the problems that a specific group is that you're targeting. When we started, we were kind of very focused on solving features as a service for platform teams like ours, like machine learning platform teams. You want to deploy a feature store. You want to operate that, and you know, solve the needs of all your data scientists wanting to get into production. So we collect, you know, we frequently survey our users inside of Gojek. And when we started, you know, with the open source project, we would frequently speak to our users and customers and figure out what their pain points were. Try and not bite off too much, which is something we were guilty of at some point, you know, trying to do too much. You know, figuring out their pain points, and then we were often informed by our internal you know, fires that we were fighting um, in Gojek. Um, so it's an open source project, but you slant and bias towards the problems that you as a team have, because we also operate the system and we have our own users. Those would often be weighted slightly more than the external community at the start. But, you know, as time grew on and things stabilized internally, was just, you know, kind of like a democratic process where we looked at both internal and external needs of users. Um, and then we would just kind of prioritize and see which ones would be the most impactful.
1: You know. I see. So it's just another question about the community perspective of building an open source project. And it's just FIS has dedicated wiki, Slack channels and website documentation. I guess that over the years, what are some of the steps that you commit to in order to grow the list of contributors? Right.
2: Yeah. That's interesting because when you start, you don't really know how to do that. I guess we kind of just emulated other projects. You know, if you put up your code, you slap on a license, start adding docs, add a website, there people expect certain things from a project and. You know, you have to provide what they expect. The project has to have a certain hygiene. Naturally, you know, going to doing talks. This one I'm doing right now and having a Slack channel. I think they were all very important in growing community. Probably the most important thing that we did was having RFCs. So we would design specific functionality, share that with the community, get their feedback, take their feedback, respond to them, engage with them, especially if they're making issues on GitHub, try and respond to them. Yeah, it just grew from there.
1: Perfect. Yeah. Most recently, you wrote this blog post called uh, A State of Feast" back in October. It identifies some of the lessons that you learned as well as the future of fish as a lightweight modular feature store. Can you dissect some of the key points from that post and uh, what can we expect to see more of feast in 2021?
2: Yeah, so that post, I kind of had a lot of things going on in that post. So let me just dive into some of the key lessons we learned. So one was like feast requires a little bit too much infrastructure. It's kind of like a big system to deploy. Um, Feast was kind of monolithic, v 0.7. The original design of Feast also had a kind of unified ingestion layer. So that's the third point. It was the ingestion was too complex. And the fourth one is our technology choices, intergeneralization. So we had doubled down on BigQuery and Apache Beam and Dataflow and Kafka. But those technology choices make it very hard to move to Amazon, where a lot of our users are. So in order to kind of move off of that, we had to make some design decisions, like you know, adopting Spark instead of Apache Beam, you know, refactoring some of the core code for the project. So right now, v 0.8 we support Amazon because we've generalized using Spark. For 0.9, we will support Azure as well. So we'll be on all three major core clouds, depending on who you ask what a major cloud is. But the key things that I actually want to highlight from that post are we're going to go closer to Python instead of Java. Java has been great for us, but a lot of folks in the community um, are not kind of engineers and they're just data scientists or they're folks familiar with Python. For the functionality, that's that doesn't have to be super low latency. We're going to make sure that it's written in Python and easier to install and especially available locally. And We're going to make sure that Feast is a very lightweight system And in fact, right now we're trying to make it even completely runnable from a Jupyter notebook, like a Google Collaboratory or something like that. So that's something we're kind of designing right now. It's not really fleshed out still. It's just our vision, but you can expect to see a release related to this lightweight mode of running Feast, I guess in the next couple of months, maybe May-ish, something around
1: there. Definitely looking forward to see some of those capabilities being incorporated in Fisher Vision, the library, the open source project. And I guess, like, my next question is kind of very closely related to that. FIST was recently backed by Tecton, which is an enterprise-level feature store built by the creators of Uber Michelangelo. As a result of this, you joined Tecton as an engineering lead a couple months ago. So in your opinion, what are some differences between open source and commercial software? Second point is, like, how would the migration between Tecton and FIST look like?
2: Yeah, I mean, commercial software always has... um... I guess the key thing is who are you targeting with the software and with commercial software? Uh, it's people that want to buy. And often those are people that have large problems. They're willing to put some money forward to solve that problem. They don't want to necessarily have engineering teams spend literally years, by the way, it takes years to develop a feature store if you want to build something at scale, um, especially at the scale of, you know, Tecton. you know, so those are kind of the folks that Tecton is trying to address and there are large companies and enterprises that you know, pay for that software. Their requirements can, you know, vary from something that's it's a small company that just want to have a production-grade feature store with enterprise capabilities that can serve data in real time to their models, or it can do large-scale transformation and scale out horizontally. But you can go up to like, let's say, it's a bank or you know, a company that has strict regulatory requirements. The product that you have to develop to satisfy those companies like a bank it requires a lot of engineering you need to provide a lot of guarantees security and regulatory and then you move to like another company that has very niche data model for example they might have to require on-demand transformations it's something that a lot of the feast users also have but we don't really have a bandwidth to satisfy or tackle so i think it's mostly about experience that those companies want a more managed self-serve one and the complexity of the problems that they're trying to tackle with feast we want to provide the kind of like imagine a ladder right Mm -hmm. we're going to be those bottom rungs of that ladder so if you're just a data scientist or a small team or a platform team but you know you just want to run a system for uh, you maybe even build your own platform on top of feast you can go for it the feast can be that core but if you want like a self-serve turnkey enterprise feature store, you have a lot of complex use cases or you're running over a billion-dollar-plus company, Tecton is an obvious choice. And I think the product is very far ahead of anything else I've seen in the space.
1: Yeah. Just curious, what do you see to be the adoption of feature store within the broader machine and community within the upcoming years or so? Where, where is this going? you expect to see like more players in this feature store landscape? Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, this whole ML ops landscape is exploding. It's kind of crazy.
2: I uh, didn't really expect it. So I'd say, you know, we've already got four or five big players in the feature store space. Amazon's one. You know, Google is going to launch one, I think. Um Tecton. There's a bunch of other smaller startups. There's at least one or two, you know, open source. I'd say we probably will have like 10 to 20 feature store available for use. And mm-hmm. that doesn't even include the countless. And I mean, like what you see on GitHub and, you know, on websites that are, you know, products, it's only a small, it's a tip of the iceberg compared to how many feature stores have been built in companies. Literally every large company has a feature store, whether, you know, they broadcast that out or not. There's some team somewhere. If they are modernizing, then they have built something to this effect in the last two or three years. Yeah. It's definitely something that we see um, is becoming mainstream. I think the challenge we have is kind of educating people on what exactly is a feature store, like what is inside of that box and what isn't. Um, so that's something that Techton, and you know, I, Mike, and some of the others, we're putting a lot of effort into that. And even you know, some of our competitors as well is just educating users on what is the unique properties of the feature store. And why is it different from a database or why is it different from you know a TFX or you know, other similar tools like Airflow or transformation systems like Spark?
1: yeah perfect yeah thanks a lot for providing some of those insights and i'm definitely looking forward to see more coverage or adoption of future stars within the broader community in the upcoming months and years or so and definitely that's an exciting direction so i want to end our conversation within more of a personal note i have lived and worked in south africa southeast asia and now in silicon valley how would you compare your experience living and working in these different geographic regions oh that's an interesting question
2: I'd say the South African experience is one that's very similar to well, I like just landed in Silicon Valley, so I can't really comment on that. But I think it's going to be very similar to South Africa in that it's a, you know it's suburban and it's a car culture that's wildly different from Southeast Asia, where you can just jump on a train, you don't have to have a car. It's you know very tighter spaces, and more confined, but at the same time, you know a, r- a lot richer food experience, a lot more diverse culturally in terms of you know amounts of different cultures that are mixed. In in one place, especially in Singapore and Bangkok and Thailand, and obviously there's a, a history that dates hundreds and hundreds of years back um, in many of these countries. So it, it was a blast working there. I wouldn't mind going back at some point in my life or my career. And the best thing about Southeast Asia is you can just jump on a plane and just you know go to one of these like super interesting uh, small countries or you know, getaway places. Yeah.
1: I guess also in terms of the tech and data communities in these different regions, what do you see to be the key differentiators between these, both from a talent perspective as well as from a funding or money flow, things like that?
2: Well, it's clear that funding right now is not a problem anywhere in the world anymore. Obviously, the U.S. is always the highest, but if you just look at the amount of funding that startups in Asia are getting now, it's getting up there. So there's definitely a lot of funding there. Overall, it's extremely rare for a feast-like system to be built in Southeast Asia, I wouldn't say it's a fluke, but it's not something that I've seen a lot. So most Southeast Asian companies are still focused on implementing solutions and not really building products. So you don't really see a lot of, let's say an envoy or something like that being developed in Southeast Asia, a non-vendor like Lyft producing an open source project that becomes like like an industrial standard. Um, It's extremely rare for that to happen. The competence is there, but the companies are not being run in that fashion. Um, So the engineers are not being allowed to do that and you know, for better or worse, that's the way they've chosen to, to operate things. So that's, there's definitely a cultural difference there in Silicon Valley. I know for a fact that it's completely different depending on, of course, who you are employed by.
1: I see. So what you're saying is like a company in Southeast Asia has more focus on the execution part rather than the innovation part.
2: If you operate a business in Southeast Asia, or if you work for a company that's operating business, they'll focus on the business as the primary focus and so if you have like a, a online travel agency, they'll focus on the travel aspect and they won't focus on the technology and becoming a tech company, mm-hmm. right? So basically like Amazon started with online books and then they don't resemble what they are today. what They were like 20 years ago, right? Because they're almost even being seen as a technology company, but the Southeast Asian companies stay focused on their core business and they don't ever become technology companies really. It always seems a cost center, not always, but for the most part. Very interesting insight.
1: Well, I'm at this point of conversation, I want to move to the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then going just give the quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the broader machine learning data engineering universe whose work you admire.
2: Uh, it was rapid fire, but I need to think about this one a little bit. Definitely David Aronchik is one that I admire. Um, he's been a very vocal um, person on the whole ML space. He's Involved in Kubeflow, he's been involved in Google AI platform. He's over at Microsoft right now. He's an advisor to Tecton as well. Um, to full disclaimer, but um, somebody that I admire. Then um, I guess his partner in crime, Jeremy Lewey, who was you know instrumental in helping us to open source Feast. Another one, and then yeah, I actually want to say four. <laughs> There's a guy called Riza Rockney uh, who's a dev rel at Google in uh, Southeast Asia. He's massive on Apache Beam and Dataflow, and just super good at helping teams get up and running with like data systems and data processing systems. Um, and then there's another guy called Philippe Hoffa, who I think is one of the best people at you know, just making an extremely difficult concept seem easy. He was kind of cl- working on BigQuery as a, also DevRel for Google, but mm-hmm. I think he's moved over to Snowflake right now. Um, but those are all former Googlers. Okay, so I'm super biased, but they've done really good work that
1: I admire. Yeah. Fascinating. And be sure to include all those profiles in, in the show notes so people can check them out. Yeah. Number two What is one book that you would recommend for people who want to develop a better engineering mindset?
2: Uh, This is a tricky one. I think I don't really have a good one for engineering mindset. I think typically if the goal is to have higher engineering product, it's probably something like in the modern age that reduces the amount of distraction that you have Mm. and, you know, makes you more mindful and Mm. more focused. So a book that has been extremely impactful for me was deep work by Cal Newport. Um, it's not really exactly the answer you want and it's not really something that's like a hidden gem. It's kind of a well-known book, but I mm-hmm. felt like there were a lot of I mean, important lessons in that book that I often try and revisit.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's definitely a, a very sound answers. I mean, like Kanye Pott, he's also like a computer science professor. So he yeah. his perspective are very applicable to a lot of engineering and like technical broader audience as well, right? Yeah. Number three, Imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the aspiring platform engineers on Twitter. What could you tweet about?
2: I just say, take it easy. <laughs> Don't take yourself too seriously. Just chill out.
1: <laughs> yeah, fabulous. So, well, I'm, I think that's a great way to end our conversation. I really enjoy talking with you today, learning about your journey from starting a startup in college to working in industrial data system to moving to Southeast Asia and Developing scalable machine platform for one of the biggest unicorns in the space, to some of the very interesting work with Viz and the future of store, and currently some of the work that you are working on for Tecton. I'll be sure to include all the links, the resources, and talks, and blog posts and GitHub repo that you mentioned in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to check it out and learn more about this movement of bringing store to the real world. So, yeah, I really enjoy our chat and hope you have a great rest of your evening. Thanks for having me, James. It's a pleasure.
0: Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website JamesCaley.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us Goodbye for now